Good morning again. It is a joy to have the privilege to preach God's word to us all this morning. And uh, we are in the Gospel of Matthew. And the title for this series is The Coming Messiah. And in our text this morning, we're going to meet John the Baptist, who is preparing the way for the coming Messiah. In John's life and in his preaching, we'll see a culmination of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament prophets who are always pointing forward to the coming Messiah and the kingdom of heaven. So the text this morning that I'd like to call your attention to is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. So I'll read God's word and then I will pray for our time together. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance." And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. God, we ask that it would do its work in our hearts, that we be conformed by the teaching and the preaching of your word, Lord, that Christ would be magnified, that Christ would be glorified in our lives, Lord. Guard us and keep us from the evil one, Lord. We pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the text, illuminate our hearts, Lord, to understand and apply the word to our lives, that we would be hearers and doers of the word. We thank you, Lord, for this time. It is a joy to gather together in Jesus' name. It is a joy, Lord. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, we find in this gospel of Matthew, good news, the coming Messiah, the one who will save his people from their sins. As we explored in weeks past, Jesus Christ is the son of David, the king. He is the son of Abraham, the great patriarch, the one to whom the Lord promised, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is the Son of God. As the angel told both Joseph and Mary, this child is from the Holy Spirit. 
And as this glorious gospel unfolds, as heaven breaks in, as God comes to dwell with us, we see the true nature of God, the true humility of God, the condescension of Christ. For although Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham, his family pedigree is not polished or pretty. Our author intentionally includes rather racy and scandalous parts of our Lord's genealogy to remind us again of the depth of Christ's condescension and how this man of sorrows has come to taste our sadness. Mighty God becomes humble man, a baby born in the small town of Bethlehem to poor pilgrim parents. And while still a vulnerable child, he's a refugee, exiled in Egypt, running from a tyrannical king who seeks to kill him. And when he returns from this exodus, rather than enter into Jerusalem, the rightful home of the king of the Jews, he's raised in a small, no-name town of Nazareth in northern Galilee. And as we'll see in our text this morning, in God's providence, he sends a messenger to prepare the way and announce the good news of the coming king. This messenger, like our Lord, cries, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom, is not of this world. It's a kingdom that comes down, that is rightfully opposed to those who lift themselves up. This kingdom is for those who are willing to be humbled in the waters of baptism. For as our Lord said, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Three points for us this morning. The last prophet, his message, and his Messiah. Point number one, the last prophet. Throughout human history, God has made covenants or promises with his people. God made a covenant with Noah. God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with Moses. God made a covenant with David. And throughout human history, God's people have broken those promises and turned away from the living God to worship and serve false gods, to pledge allegiance to created things rather than to the creator. And God's people have suffered for their rebellion. And in today's story, Israel is in a similar place. Their king is cruel. The religious elite are corrupt And Rome is occupying and their hearts are discouraged and doubting the promises of God. And yet despite their rebellion, God in his mercy sends prophets to call people back to himself. To repent and return to God to experience the joy and blessing of God once again. And as these prophets preached, they always seemed to be pointing forward to the great day of the Lord where the relationship between God and his people would be different to a time when the true king of kings would rule and reign on the earth and destroy all rebellion, all sin, and all wickedness. Now before we listen to this last prophet, let's go back. Let's listen to a couple of the prophets of old. And one striking thing that two of these prophets in particular speak of as they look forward to this day of the Lord, to God's kingdom reign on the earth, 
It's a time when God will make a new covenant, an everlasting covenant with his people and deal with sin once and for all. And these two prophets are Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So let's listen and consider these prophets' message. If you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. Go to the middle of the Bible, Isaiah, and then hang a right. Isaiah, Jeremiah chapter 31. The prophet Jeremiah, he is living during the time when the nation of Israel is divided. Surrounding nations of Assyria and Babylon are a constant threat. The people are in deep distress. They're longing for God to deliver them. And in Jeremiah 31, we read these beautiful words as as Jeremiah speaks about the restoration of Israel. I'll read verses 1 through 6, and then I'll jump down to verse 31. For Jeremiah, verses 1 through 6. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Amen. Consider Ezekiel. Keep going in your Bible. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, chapter 37. He's following after Jeremiah. He is in exile in Babylon, and he too is longing for the day when God will come and restore Israel. And in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, We have the famous Valley of Dry Bones vision. And down in verse 21, kind of in the middle of verse 21, I'll start reading. It says, thus says the Lord God. So it's Ezekiel 37, right there in 21. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone. And I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all, and they, shall, and they shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. 
they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Amen. And as we will see today in John the Baptist's ministry, that day of the Lord has drawn near and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All four of the gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, include the ministry of John the Baptist. His ministry is not some freak sideshow. It is a culmination, a pulling together of all these prophetic strands to this precision focal point in history, deeply significant to God's plan of salvation. John the Baptist's ministry in God's providence is a linchpin between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. All the prophets have been pointing forward to the coming Messiah, to the day of the Lord, to the kingdom of God, to this new, this everlasting covenant. As the author of Hebrews states, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so here in John the Baptist, we find a culmination of those prophets of old. As we see back here in Matthew, verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the forerunner, the friend of the bridegroom, setting the stage for the Messiah to come and to fulfill all all righteousness. He is a herald going before the glorious processional of the king, clearing away, announcing the good news of the king's rule and reign. So we see that God brought him forth as a final witness to testify about the true king, the kingdom of heaven. This king who commands allegiance from all the kings and kingdoms of the world. Here in verse 4, we again see Matthew pointing us back to the prophets of old. In verse 4, Matthew makes a specific reference to John's attire, to his clothing. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Why is that? Is it really that important or is it just decoration? Right? So probably some of you kids right now are drawing this picture, right? If you got some coloring pages back there, why the camel's hair? Why the, why the leather belt? Is this just some crazy hippie dude running around in the wilderness? No. Matthew specifically mentions that John, what John wore to help the reader, con- again, connect the dots and identify John the Baptist with the prophets of old. If you were to go back and read in 2 Kings 1.8, we read about the prophet Elijah. And it says this, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. Matthew says, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. This is not coincidental. This is authorial intent. I would argue that both John himself 
and Matthew, who is describing John the Baptist, are intentionally trying to relate and connect John's ministry with the ministry of Elijah. Okay, so the author is showing us how John the Baptist is like the Old Testament prophet Elijah. But what is so significant about that? Why is he dressing this way? I would say John intentionally dressing like the prophet Elijah. You know, like you kind of dress like your heroes of old, right? Why is he doing this? And why is Matthew paying so much close attention? Well, because like Isaiah prophesied about this voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, so too the prophet Malachi speaks of a similar figure, which Oshua read this morning, preparing the way for the Lord. Malachi chapter 3, the Lord speaking, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And then the book of of Malachi closes with these words. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So a faithful Jew who loves the scriptures, treasures God's word, recognizes that before the Messiah comes, a forerunner will come and it will be Elijah or one like Elijah. And isn't that what our Lord Jesus says, right? John the Baptist eventually gets imprisoned by Herod. His disciples come to him and say, hey, what's up? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says this about John. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. So Matthew's making it very clear for us. John the Baptist is the Elijah who is preparing the way for the Lord. So if John the Baptist is the last prophet of old who prepares the way of the Lord, how is he doing it? What is his message? Point number two, his message. John begins his ministry by preaching. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you were to fast forward to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, you will hear that exact same refrain. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. God's kingdom is here. Men and women have lived in rebellion against God, and now is the time to repent, to turn from sin, to stop running from God and turn to God, confessing our sins. This word repent indicts us. It tells us we are going the wrong direction. And this word is the essence of the law. The law brings a conviction of sin. Isn't that what you felt today during the catechism question? Or felt during this week as you were teaching your kids or teaching yourself this question? What does the law of God require? Personal, perfect, perpetual obedience that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done and what God commands should always be done. As we read that, as we discuss it, as we hide it in our heart, it hits us hard. It cuts us deep. It makes us feel the weight of our sin and our rebellion against God. Perfect obedience? Not 75%. Not 95%. Perfect. Flawless. Perpetual obedience? Ongoing? Always? 24-7? 
always loving God with everything I am, always loving my neighbors myself, obeying every command of God and never drifting and never straying. Do you feel that weight of the law? John's message, both his life and his preaching are testifying to the law of God. And yet even amidst that weight, we see a threshold to the gospel. For as the Proverbs say, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And that is what John is doing. He is calling people to repent of their sins. And they are coming and they are confessing their sins and they are receiving mercy. What a gift. What a gift. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve God's just judgment and wrath. But what does God do? He sends us a prophet, John, to call people to turn from their sin. That's what repentance means. Stop believing that you can somehow discover the truly good life apart from God. God is gracious, brothers and sisters, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah, who is going to save his people from their sins, he sends John the Baptist to call the people to repent, to show them God's holy law and his perfect standard of righteousness for them to see how desperately they need a savior. And that's a mercy. God could simply judge the wicked and be done with it. But he's gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's rich in love. He relents from sending calamity. Think of the prophet Jonah. Who's the stingy one in that story? Jonah. Jonah wants fire to come down on the Ninevites. But God is merciful and he wants to save the Ninevites. He's deeply concerned for the 120,000 who don't know their right from their left. So this strong call to repent truly is a mercy. God is holy, but God is love. And in his holiness, he desires us to share his holiness, to be in relationship with him. So in love, he sends prophets to speak the word of God and call people to repentance. In my studies, I was deeply enriched by a commentary that Matthew suggested, Frederick Bruner's commentary, but highly recommend it. And listen to how he reflects on this dynamic between John's ministry of law preparing the way for Jesus' gospel ministry. Without the law, we will feel little need for the gospel. Without knowing our sickness, we will not seek the physician. John the Baptist, with his withering message, belongs in the Christian canon and church, not as the Savior, but as the preparer for the Savior. John is right. God wants fruit worthy of a life that has changed its direction. It will be the claim of the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, that the source of power for the fruit demanded by John will be found in the one to whom John points. Bruner then goes on to say how not only does John's message prepare the way for the gospel, but it also protects the gospel. Bruner writes, John precedes the ministry of Jesus in order to protect Jesus' grace for being understood as indulgence and his free pardon of sin for being understood as free license to sin. Everything God does for us in Christ is done so that we might be personally righteous. 
Everything God does for us in Christ is done so that we might be personally righteous. John the Baptist is declaring to the people that they need to repent of their sins. So in our text, what marks true repentance? I think there's three things we see here. Confession, baptism, and fruit. So let's look at those very briefly. Confession, baptism, and fruit. People are coming and confessing their sins. They're confessing their rebellion against God. And in this context, they are openly admitting their sins. They're coming to John in the wilderness and they are publicly admitting that they are full of sin. One commentator states, the remedy for sin is not denying sin's presence or explaining it away, but openly admitting it. We are free from sin only when we face it. Sin is remitted where sin is admitted. So confession is a mark of true repentance. Baptism. Again, here we see glimpses of the gospel. This is a water baptism by John. This isn't Jesus' baptism that we'll see shortly. But it is a shadow of the gospel. There is cleansing for sin. Perhaps you're wondering, where did baptism even come from? Uh, We don't really see baptism in the Old Testament. So what's this all about? Well, in Jewish history, there were definitely washing and, and cleansing ceremonies even though we don't see this word baptism. But we do see these rites of ritual purification. And this washing and cleansing was especially significant for new converts to Judaism. In order for non-Jews to become followers of Yahweh, they needed to go through these cleansing waters. So baptism here is clearly communicating a cleansing from sin, a dying to sin, and a raising to a life of right living before God. One commentator says, baptism is a kind of drowning and cleansing all at once, which says in so many words, die, sin. So baptism is a mark of true repentance. And then fruit. This is where John the Baptist gets at the religious leaders. Repentance is not a thing you do once and then go back to living your life. It's a lifestyle. If one is truly repentant, their life will be marked by good fruit good deeds, fruits of righteousness that are pleasing to God. Again, that's why John is being so harsh with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Amidst the crowds of people coming to genuinely repent of the sins, these religious leaders are coming. But they're not putting their hope in God. They're putting their hope in their upbringing, their pedigree, their education, their theological prowess, the side of the fence that they fall, whether they're liberal or whether they're conservative. But John is reminding them that you can't play games with God. God sees our heart. Those who have not truly repented, no matter what motions they may go through or what party they belong to, without a true transformation of heart that is fleshed out in righteous living, they are deceiving themselves. And I think we deceive ourselves as well. We like our our theology. We like our camp, reformed camp. And we can take more hope in that and live a horrible life than our, you know, Arminian brother or whatever label you want to put on another brother in Christ who doesn't, doesn't, doesn't embrace the same doctrines that you do, but he is bearing fruit. And John would call us to repent. Don't put your hope in your doctrine. Put your hope in Jesus. Put your hope in Christ and in Christ alone. So John's ministry is calling people to repent. He is standing before them with the mirror of the law, so to speak, 
showing them their desperately sick, sinful condition, which leads us to point number three, his Messiah. Amidst John's ministry of calling people to repent, he recognizes its limits. He recognizes that his ministry is conditional. It is temporary. It is not an end in itself. He is a signpost, a messenger, preparing the way, pointing forward to the gospel of God's saving grace. He recognizes he's only baptizing with water. Water baptism can only clean you on the outside, right? Jesus, if you keep going in Matthew, Matthew 23 makes a similar rebuke to the scribes and Pharisees. He says this in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So what is needed? What was John preparing the way for? For the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Spirit. John knew full well that he too needed a Messiah. He is not deceived that he is somehow without sin, without the need of a Savior. As we'll see in our text next week, Jesus, when Jesus asks John to baptize him, John says, I need to be baptized by you. John knows the one to, that the one to come, the Messiah, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, is mightier than he is, he, and he is not even willing or able or worthy to untie his sandals, take off his shoes. True baptism, the true baptism that every one of us needs is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, born from above, born of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So again, the ministry of John the Baptist brings the moral weight of God's righteous law to bring a conviction of sin. And the law does its work and it brings us to Christ. And we cry out to God. We confess our sin. And we ask him to cleanse us from the inside. And that is what he does. What does John say of Jesus in the Gospel of John? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world. Friends, it is all of grace. The one who is forgiven and justified is the very one who confesses his sin and cries out to God for mercy, trusting not in their own works, but in the finished work of Christ. Paul, writing to Titus, sums it up so well. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And through our Lord Jesus Christ, that veil between God and man is now forever torn. And God's Spirit can now fully dwell in and with his people. 
For those who have been born of the Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, the old man has died. We have been crucified with Christ and raised to new resurrection life in the Spirit. Amen? We are the temple of God's presence. Emmanuel, God with us. Do you see that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? All that the Old Testament prophets looked forward to has come in Christ and will come fully when Christ comes again. That is what happened at Pentecost. Jesus says to his disciples in Acts 1, wait for the promise of the Father which you heard from me. For John, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down in power and in tongues of fire. In the first Christian sermon that Peter preached in Acts 2, he again quotes the Old Testament prophets, Joel, and in these last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That is the heritage, friends, that we have as Christians those who have been delivered out of darkness into God's marvelous light, we have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. To be baptized in the Holy Spirit means that you are a Christian. You belong to Jesus. You're a child of God. This is not some second work of grace for the elite. This is for all who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. A practical application if we've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, are our lives marked by true repentance? Are our lives marked by true con- repentance? Are we confessing our sins one to another, as James says, so that we might be healed? You know, one of the values that we have in this church is, is triads. And we really encourage everybody to be in a triad. Why? Because that is a place where you can gather with brothers or sisters that you have lived life with, you, you trust them, you know that they have your back, that they're for you, and you can confess your sin. If you're not a triad, I would encourage you to get into a triad. Talk to your community group leader. Get into a triad. If you're not in a community group, talk to myself or Zrust or any of the pastors. Triad is a place where we can confess our sins, where we can be healed, We can be filled with the Spirit. We can bear the fruit of righteousness. Or people can say, hey, I see this pattern in your life. How how is God at work? How can we help you put this to death? Put this deed of the flesh to death and, and walk in the Spirit. So again, true repentance, a mark of true repentance, or a mark of, of being baptized in the Holy Spirit is true repentance. Not everyone repents. Not everyone truly repents. And those who are not baptized in the Spirit are burned with fire. John the Baptist ends his sermon with fire. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The one who has come to baptize with the Holy Spirit also baptizes with fire. Now, some have thought these two, the Holy Spirit and fire, to be synonymous. As in Acts 2 at Pentecost, there are references to tongues of fire. Malachi 3, it talks about a refining fire. But the three times that John uses fire in this sermon, I think all clearly speak of God's wrath, 
of God's judgment against the wicked who will not repent. Verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It seems clear to me that John is speaking of the final judgment when our Lord returns to judge the quick and the dead. God is not mocked. His wrath and his judgment is real and it is coming. He is coming again with vengeance to judge the nations. He who sows to the flesh will reap destruction. That is a promise. Those who refuse to repent will face the righteous wrath of God. Don't judge God, my friends. To quote another brother, the wrath of God is not the irritability of God. It is the love of God in friction with injustice. It is the warm, steady, patient, but absolutely fair grace of God in collision with manifest selfishness. Our Lord Jesus is far more just, far more merciful, and far more patient than you. And in love, he sends prophets like John the Baptist to warn John's hearers then and to warn us today to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if we won't repent and lay down our deadly doing, we will perish. You will perish and experience the unquenchable fire of eternal damnation and judgment where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So repent. Confess your sin to God. Trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Let sin die. Be buried in the waters of baptism with Christ and experience the new resurrection life in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist that he prepared the way for our Messiah to come and to die for our sins, to atone for our sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we ask that we would see Jesus today, that we would turn from our sin and trust in Christ and in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sin. Oh Lord, oh Lord, I pray that we would be a people who repent and repent and repent and return and return and return back to you, Jesus, the true fount of living water, the bread from heaven, what our souls truly long for. Lord, I pray for those that have not been baptized in the Spirit, for those who have not repented of their sins and been born again. Oh, Lord, would you quicken them? Would you bring faith, Lord? Would you grant repentance, Father? We thank you. Thank you for this church, Lord. We thank you for the 
gift of preaching your word. Lord, may we be changed by your word. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. We're going to take communion together. This is the Lord's tables for those who have repented, trusted in Christ, you've been baptized, showing that you've died with Christ and you've been raised again to newness of life. If that describes you, you're welcome at this table. If that does not describe you, then our call to you, my call to you is to repent and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. After we come up and take the elements back to our seat, one of the pastors will lead us together.